Hey folks, and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll be sitting down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The daily ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing. We have Raising Arizona, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Burn After Reading, and Inside Lewin Davis, all directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. And then finally, we have our newly released film, Drive Away Dolls, directed solely by Ethan Cohen. So it is going to be a Cohen-filled week, ladies and gentlemen. So stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Daly, how we doing, buddy? How's it going, Tom? Uh, it's going okay for me. How was your uh, How was your Cohen week of movies? I'll tell you what, this was a great week. Uh, yeah, it's, I, it's a. I was a little bit behind the eight ball on uh, on getting some of these done, uh, just with uh, things going on in my life. But uh, these were a breeze to watch. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, one thing we just were co- commenting on is I didn't realize how short of a movie mm. of directors they were. Yep, yeah. Like everything you had said, everything is under two hours everything. today. Everything. Yep, absolutely. And that is a <laughs> that is a secret success of these films for me. <laughs> but uh, folks, this is our kind of our unseen. Coen Brothers episode, uh, similar to how we did for the Paul Thomas Anderson episode uh, going way back when. I, that that perpetually is always last December for me. Now that's two, two December's, December's ago. ago. Yeah, It's crazy. All these films uh, have not seen before. Uh, of course, the Coen Brothers have many other uh, movies and uh, and projects to their name that are very recognizable, but this is about watching you know, what I haven't before. Yeah, so. they really have made a lot. Oh, yeah. It's, Absolutely. it's kind of surprising. Yeah. And we commented a few weeks ago how all of a sudden they've kind of separated for like mm. the first time practically ever. Mm. Yep. Where Joel did the Macbeth yep. for Apple. Mm-hmm. And now Ethan is doing Drive Away Dolls. And I thought that, I thought there was a third one where they were separate on. I think so too. I can't I can't think of it now. Though. But I think it was something yeah. or something coming out. Yep. But yep. in a recent interview, I think it was Joel Cohen okay. uh, was in an interview and there and he was like, Oh no, we're gonna be working again soon. Mm, so okay, there's good. something in the works. Right, right. Um, we're not seeing a messy breakup or right. anything. No, like definitely that. not. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. And it's my understanding too that Joel was always like the camera bug. He was always the one mm. actually behind the lens mm-hmm. mostly. Yep. And, and Ethan's always writing. Yes. Uh, and yeah. they're always in they're always like Ethan is also directing, but he's always uncredited. Yep. yep. But he's always known as also a director. And right. they kind of share that. They always are doing film editing too. Mm. And they just go by a different pseudonym. Uh, pseudonym. Oh, really? Pseudonym? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they always do a different. If, I forget what the name is. Like Jane Roderick or Roderick Jane really? or something like that. Wow. I had if, no idea. If you ever see that name, that means that it's just the, both of them. Interesting. There's there's a couple different rabbit holes I had this week in research and, and refining the notes, but uh, I didn't come across that. So that's awesome. 
That's good. Soderbergh does that too. Yeah, he just takes the name of like a, a woman or something like that. Yeah. Well, apparently Soderbergh has a his, his personal website is where a lot of these like uh, black and white cuts that he does yes. are, are put and whatnot. So uh, it's I, it's why I really like Soderbergh, but because when I watch his films, it's always hit or miss. Actually, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In actuality, uh, yeah. When you watch the films, it's just like all right, less style, but I don't know. You know? <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah. the Coen Brothers are awesome. They're really well known. Mm. They're always doing all kinds of projects, whether it be big. Or or small, mm, you yeah, know what I mean. Absolutely, it seems like they do a lot of smaller stuff, but then they have big talent. Or I don't know, they're, they're never like the biggest box office success. No, I don't think so. And and especially looking two thousand seven onwards, uh, yeah, I mean, not even like big hits among their hits as well. So something I was looking at, I tried this week to capture. As many eras of their filmmaking as possible. Yeah. Well, uh, you started with the yeah, you hit the eighties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the nineties aren't really hit, but you have O Brother with uh, with two thousand. But right. they do so much. Yeah. They work pretty quick. Like their right. turnover is like impressive. Mm-hmm. And some of that early work is very hokey. Very not not the greatest. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when they're just like kind of writing scripts and and handing them out. Yeah. But folks, I mean, as far as what we love to do on the podcast uh, is spot trademarks of directors and and really any kind yeah. of creative artist here. So. You know, I think uh, I think when it comes to the Cone Brothers, uh, their trademark is undoubtedly within their writing. But within that, it's a lot of things <laughs> because I mean, the writing is is more of a styling yeah. of how their films feel. Um, they love super odd characters, often inserting original ones, even when adapting something. And I would say interesting casting choices really come secondhand. They really are a magnet for uh, repeat faces and interesting casting that I don't know if it's behind the scenes they make these friendships or whatnot or the people are just dying to work with them. Uh, but uh, they're also the uh, the masters of crime, uh, not sacrificing violence on screen and even often being paired with comedy. I would say the masters of small-time crime, uh, which yes. is a concept we'll return on many times in films this week and, of course, kind of going into uh, uh, one of their best uh, being Fargo. Like we talked about already, already most of all they know how to trim the fat uh these films are editing marvels all <laughs> under two hours and i i can't tell you how especially again <laughs> being behind the curve a little bit on this week was such a blessing and and also for the enjoyment of these films because they're, they're wrapping up i'm like oh yeah that's that's enough of a story. I don't need more. And there wasn't, you know, fat to trim. You can't these. say they're not complete. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. They, they are complete films and complete stories. Yeah. It'd be funny to talk about pacing uh, and one of them coming up. <laughs> oh, yeah, a- yeah. As you know, I watched Raising Arizona and Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. Because yep. we watched them together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we had a great uh, breakfast. Uh, also, producer Sean. It was, a, it was a good time. So, okay. Do you want to start start up right away? Yeah, let's go to absolutely raising Arizona. All right, we're jumping back to 1987. Not their first film, but mm. definitely early career. One of their first biggies. Yeah. Um, and this had some praise and kind of well known when it came out mm, right yep. away. Mm-hmm. So 87, it's raising Arizona with a very young Nick Cage. Vin, uh, let's set it up. And how did you like it? Well, I, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I was surprised. I was worried it would be too family oriented, uh, but mm, really okay. fits the wheelhouse. Uh, honestly. And folks, this episode might very much be about the Coen brothers directly, but this one is notable for, as you said, Tom, a super early Nick Cage performance at the ripe age of 23. 
Make How old do you think he looks? Uh, he could pass for 32, easy. I know, yeah. It's, it's, I guess it's in his hair. His hair has a, uh, <laughs> you know, just got out of bed kind of <laughs> look. But, yeah, I don't know. Making us feel like old men. 23, Nick Cage. I, I guess this is the time as well that he would come and do cartwheels on talk shows when he came out. That was something that Nick Cage was known for. So <laughs> I have to go back and look up some yeah, of those. Yeah, I think... I think <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the vids. I would say for Nick Cage, this is not only an early performance, but a standout performance. Uh, very same year, he starred in Moonstruck, uh, an equal feather in his cap for his early career. And long before the woes of uh, his overacting making him infamous, I mean, Christ, uh, this is one year later, and we get the delicious garbage that is Vampire's Kiss. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to the 90s. Vampire's Kiss is, I believe, the one where he goes, A, B, C, D. And he goes <laughs> yes, all the right. yeah. Right. Uh, he thinks he's turning into a vampire. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's so something good, else. So and, many good clips right. in that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I really do want to give a lot of praise to Cage on this one. Uh, without a doubt, you can put Racing Arizona in his category of good performances. I have to very much separate that for Nick Cage, whether it's good or bad. And um, especially with some solid narration work, the main takeaway is I'm surprised we don't see Cage among the many repeat faces working with the Coen brothers over the years, hmm. uh, where they are so... So much. I mean, from Francis McDormand to uh, John Goodman, uh, you know, these are faces. Totoro, like, yeah, or whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so many of their films over and over again. So I'm just surprised that Cage, again, as the working man, <laughs> <laughs> the working actor, uh, that we don't get that. So, Raising Arizona though is about a small time criminal who marries a small time cop. Through failed attempts of, to have a kid, they conspire to become a family by stealing one of the new quintuplets popularized on the local news. Uh, things look to be pulled off smoothly until Nick Cage's criminal past haunts him, and the temptation for action, meaning robbing gas stations and drugstores, invites dangerous personalities to threaten their new family. Uh, I would say, unlike a lot of comparisons uh, that I will make throughout this episode, this really does feel like the low-stakes crime the Coen brothers are known for, but also the first draft of mm. what we will see them knocking out of the park with the must-watch Fargo. Uh, only, you know, nine years, nine, ten years later. Yeah. This feels like, if it wasn't in Arizona, if it was, you know, uh, where am I thinking? Is, is it Milwaukee, Fargo? I'm trying to think. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Dakota. What am I saying? <laughs> North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really does feel like uh, these these criminals have nothing else but their schemes mm -hmm. and their games, mm -hmm. and and that's what I, I love uh, about these uh, these scripts that they do. There's just something so wonderful about the small but realistic motivations of our backwater characters and uh, the almost understandable circumstances that drive them to to crime. I would say the heart in their writing allows them to make our many characters criminals without them being villains. And that's the fine line And I think, a lot of Coen Brothers uh, stuff. Uh, and while in many ways Raising Arizona is sweet and a little sappy at times, uh, the stakes aren't sacrifice uh, and credit going to this kind of crime angle. It is really a sweet movie, though. This is it by is. far like the most. Fa if you could label anything a family film of the Coen <laughs> Brothers, it is Raising Arizona. It is this. It's uh, funny to know too with the characters; they are bad and they're criminals, right? 
they're lovable enough where you can put yeah. them in your shoes. Mm. They're not they're not outwardly evil. Right, right. They're just very, very small. Yeah, even, and, even the plot of this, like, stealing this baby, <laughs> it's taken with such, like, oh, they're just trying to start a family, you know? Like, yeah. Uh, and that's what's so great about it. And I think also the Coen brothers are really good, like, and it's so shown here. Mm. These are such simplistic characters where they don't want you to know anything else. Right, right. They boil these characters down to very simplistic Bullet points, yep. essentially. But it's the fact that they're not doing shtick characters mm-hmm. or such common characters where they'd just be throwaway. Yep. We're getting interesting ones with just like the weirdest little arcs. <laughs> so simple, but just the uniqueness makes it cutesy. It makes it, Absolutely. makes it fun. Absolutely. Even when you look like a John, the bad, bad ones, yep. they're bad guys in the film, like a John Goodman as well, mm-hmm. where. It's just hard not to smile when he's on screen, kind of. <laughs> You're right, right, exactly. Uh, and they do so much to, I don't know, infuse heart. I don't know if that's a uh, overused kind of term with it. But the um, emotional center of this isn't sacrifice, even though these characters are simple. I think uh, one surprise for me is Molly Hunter here uh, getting some of the biggest laughs out of me. I mean, the scene where she first sees the baby and she she goes, I love him so much. <laughs> yes. Like, it's, it's just gold. Um, <laughs> and I can't say I'm like a huge Molly Hunter fan. Um, you know, if anything, a little annoying in her Miss, Miss Elastic, uh, whatever, in The Incredibles. Ah. Um, <laughs> would you care to elaborate <laughs> on your vendetta with The Incredibles? <laughs> I just don't like it. Do I have, did I have, I talked about it further before i don't think so okay so. <laughs> not a fan <laughs> you're right you're right it's your but, bone to pick with pixar but the way i look at her <laughs> the way i look at her in this film she's mm. just to me they just got another francis mcdormand uh, even sure. though francis is in this movie <laughs> yeah she, she, they kind they look very similar <laughs> yeah and they are acting in this very similar ways absolutely absolutely i i really i almost wasn't successful at kind of unpacking it but uh especially with burn after reading i was trying to think of what is Frances McDormand's, like, I don't know, how you describe her acting, and it's almost like a, hmm. I don't know, not a Swiss Army knife, because I feel like that that decreases quality, but she's able to fit in just every type of scenario. She really uh, is. But I gotta be honest with you, I aren't, would you say that there are actually a lot of commonalities to her Fargo character, to Three Billboards, to mm. Nomadland? Uh, sure, sure, and I would definitely throw a, a Burn After Reading in oh, there okay, as well. Yeah. I guess it's kind of just uh, it's assuming the mundane. It's 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 like a mundane character. They're not really anything special, but she's still able to bring a realism to it. Yeah, uh, and what she does with her vocals and her voice are really good too. Yeah, yeah. She nails the character. I think she might be, she might be my favorite actress. Really? Yeah. Wow. She's really wow. up there. Yeah. Kate Blanchett. No, no. Frances McDormand is is higher than Kate Blanchett. Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. Interesting. We have to explore, but I think she, she's right up there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we went down the list. If you could get much better, I, I exactly, and just um, so many quality performances. Yeah, exactly uh, right. Yeah, Beth as well. Uh, you know, uh, going a few years. Was back. she in? The, did she play the FBI or the accountant in um, uh, the multiverse movie? <laughs> With um, he, with short oh, round. Oh no 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 no! Uh, everything everywhere. Yes, that's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's right. Yeah. Also, yeah. big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. No, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, guess, I guess I guess that fizzled there. <laughs> there's also a, a lot of baby jokes with this one. 
<laughs> which I don't know. Again, adds to kind of like the sappiness to it. It really made me wonder if Huggies had some skin in the game. Oh, on this one. they absolutely did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I think that might have been some early funding for them. Uh, but works in a way, you know, product placement aside, definitely that's a that's a a cringe for me. That's a that's something that makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is thematically just uh, ties to the jokes and and what's going on in the story. So. A repeat note I had with this one was cinematography as we get very uh, Sam Raimi-style shots, uh, both interesting fixed cameras, uh, mostly for some motorcycle shots, which are cool, uh, and bouncy, shaky cams, I mean, right out of Evil Dead. It looks like Evil Dead, it looks like Spider-Man 2. Uh, it's that that type of shaky cam. It just must have been kind of in their wheelhouse. Hmm. This became a huge rabbit hole for me <laughs> as uh, Barry Sonnerfeld is uh, not only behind the lens on some major projects, but then he graduates to become a director on even bigger projects in the 90s. Uh, after this, he does the camera work on the family classic Big with Tom Hanks. Uh, and mm. two of my favorites from early podcast episodes, 1989's When Harry Met Sally mm, yeah. and 1990's Misery, both working with Rob Reiner. Then, then, get this, I mean, <laughs> I, I was, I was kind of swooning over this guy. I mean, this guy, I like his career. Uh, he starts directing in 1991 and does everything from both the Addams Family movies, all three Men in Blacks, and, oh, wow. of course, the classic So Bad It's Good, 1999's Wild Wild West. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Right. So, uh, we should we got to approach those again. <laughs> Men in Black 3. I don't think anyone's asking for that. Men in Black. Oh, well, Wild Wild West, everyone would love that. Yeah, sure, sure. And Men in Black 3 is, is shockingly, <laughs> I, from what I remember, like a phenomenal tearjerker oh, right. great movie <laughs> i remember when we first watched that in our friend group and like you were you were sold on like, it's the best josh brolin's phenomenal right right but anyway the cinematography strong strong i mean my mind was blown right. by this guy's career and uh you know i just like to say you know there's some dicey choices in there i mean you know Am I really falling on the sword for the Adams Family movies? Yes, but <laughs> but you know you're all right by me, Barry. You're, you're doing you're doing good. Uh, he hasn't done anything in a while, though, so I don't know if he's dead or what. Uh, I would say production uh, tangent aside, um, I, I thought this movie was really really good. Shown in that buck thirty runtime, it is a tight story that does not need to fill empty spaces because there's not empty spaces. It's a simple arc that is executed by actors filling their roles perfectly and, and watching in modern day acts as a predecessor to so many quirks and qualities we have come to love in the Coen brothers and a great throwback to watch for that reason and a great watch in modern day even just for the film holding up on its own. Uh, with that said, we're going to go ahead and give Raising Arizona 1987 a 73. Mm, 73, good score, good yep. score. Solid uh, movie. Yeah, and I thought it was a cute movie. I thought it was good. I watched it once before Four years and years ago, mm. I was for some reason expecting a little bit more, True. like almost a little bit higher quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying you know I was expecting Fargo, mm-hmm. but um, I I don't know. I I'm not. I can't outwardly praise this film. Really, I think, okay. you're, I think you're coming off a little bit more hot than me. Okay, but I really liked the Nick Cage, and I, I did really like Holly Hunter in it as mm. well. Mm. And I mean, what can I say? Well, I mean, I you're John, a bigger it, Nick Cage fan than me. Did this? You think you would consider well, this in the good Nick Cage? I am a big Nick Cage fan, okay? <laughs> but I, the culture of Nick Cage, the Nick Caginess, I am a fan of. Oh, okay, okay. It's hard to me, like, I, you could name more movies probably than me than he's in. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I'm not a huge follow fanboy. Uh, right. But everyone loves to love Nick Cage. Right. I, I think so. You know? I've even come around. Now, right. You so. big time. On I, the podcast. I was. I really if there's one thing you can say about this podcast. It was violent. Sold me on. <laughs> sold me on Cage. Um. But anyway, he's he's great in this. I did like Holly Hunter and um, early performance from John Goodman. Mm. He was like I said, every single line out of his mouth was just <laughs> funny, and he was ridiculous. Yeah. Um. You know, always the smart criminal or the smart, yeah, ridiculous. Um. Inmate, essentially. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's pretty much it. I won't have scores for probably the next, for both of these. Okay. Honestly, but definitely a cute movie, especially for learning about Coen Brothers. Mm. This is a great place to start, I would say, as yeah. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, all right. So that's 87, Raising Arizona with a 73%. So, like I said, we're skipping through the 90s. However, we did do Fargo, mm. and I believe it's episode 11, mm. if anybody wants to go check that out. I mean, a phenomenal movie. I think that was uh, seven, uh, 97, maybe uh, ni- maybe 98. No, 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 no. Uh, oh, no, no, yeah, you are right. It was uh, it was 96, I think. 96, March yeah, 8th, nine 96, years later. right yep. on the website. Yep. yep. So if you want to check that out again, that was episode 11 of the podcast. Early one. It's an early one, folks. <laughs> I'm proud of that review, though. I mean, Fargo had such an impact in, in watching it. Uh, I think I think those... Those upper upper score ones, I'm always happy to stand yeah, by yeah, because yeah. Uh, I, I mean Fargo really is a a masterpiece of them, yeah. you know, and, and having multiple masterpieces to their names. And look what it spawned too. Mm. I mean, you have the show, you have it's just it's, it has just lasted mm, Fargo. Absolutely. Um, okay, all right. So we're jumping to the year 2000. This film is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Let's get into it right away. Maybe if, we, if you want to set it up, and then we'll kind of have a back and forth on it. Sure. Because sure. I maybe definitely have some more thoughts on this one because it's just it's more of a Raising Arizona is so simplistic. Yes, this know? has a lot going on, even though it is still a short run time. I, um, it's an hour and 47, but yeah. oh, brother, we're out there. Why don't you set it up a bit and let's tackle it. Yeah, well, uh, I think this was a movie I was always curious to check out um, as much like 1994's Shawshank Redemption and 1999's Green Mile. Uh, I seem to always enjoy these kind of shady prison settings of the 1930s. Uh, I like that type of um, uh, that, that setting and okay. that topic. Here, the infamous chain gangs of the era give birth to blues stylings that line the film, uh, earning it a Grammy for Album of the Year in 2002, uh, believe it or not. I didn't know that. I guess even back then, the Grammys were uh, a little bit too stuck up to give it to Outkast. (laughs) I think think Hey Ya was a little bit of a bigger hit than Old Brother Without Thou, no less a soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> originally, I understood this movie to be much more directly about blues and folk roots in America, even why, to the point of why I kind of wanted to watch it with you. Yeah. Acting as kind of a semi-music biopic for the genre, and while the blues performances in this film are important, uh, the movie really doesn't take that angle uh, and has these elements elevated slightly more than window dressings for the story. Just how these kind of, the themes of the chain gang, the themes of the South, a little bit of Southern grotesque as well are all kind of intermingling there yeah so yeah i was expecting more as well again i saw clips here there from this years ago mm. i mean more than clips i watched maybe, I don't know, half the movie a little bit more than half the movie sure, at some sure. point yeah it's not um i think we were both expecting a little bit more as yeah. far as the music realm and more blues i was just expecting more roots mm. stuff just mm-hmm. getting back there maybe so. even some blues brothers like callbacks to like actors or, or real real blues musicians thrown in there yeah, we just don't really get much i yeah. think there's really two featured songs mm-hmm. and then we have the main song which um i forget the name of it but the old oh, brother were out there Yes. Theme, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Constant Sorrow. That's uh, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. And that's pretty well known. But other than that, it's, it's, yeah. 
It was, yeah. it, you know, the, even the, the, I don't know, the transition jingles or whatever, mm -hmm. it's just was lacking more than it could have. I think it could yeah. have punched more if you just would have delved deeper in there. You know? I, I, absolutely. I was, agree. And I think uh, it's on top of the praise that this has received soundtrack wise that kind of points everyone in that direction, thinking it's about more about music. And yeah. It's not. If this was made 10 years later and like they were just col could collaborate with Jack White. Or something. Mm, sure, Just sure. Someone who has a really deep. Yeah, knowledge. get a strong music director that is in yeah. or appreciator of this. Or even era. like a Robbie Robertson behind the scenes sure, type sure. of guy. Just call Jack up and be like, all right, what can we put in here that actually make it a little more authentic? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because it didn't feel the most authentic. Sure. You sure. Know? Absolutely. I would say my only other production notes uh, for this here is uh, my boy, Roger Deakins, is on the lens, on yeah. the ones and twos, uh, <laughs> as he continues his partnership with the Coen brothers across many, many films. Almost too many to. to the list and deserved of credit with those uh, on those individual films uh, unpacking them honestly despite my infatuation with his work uh, I didn't really spot any mind-blowing shots here that I, I've kind of come to expect uh, I would say the most notable aspect of the film's look comes in its color grading which mm -hmm. uh, coming out in, in the year 2000 falls into uh, heavy digital filter work uh, which recently we touched on as well in Clooney's Confessions of a Danger mind digital editing uh, really popping off during this time and uh, of course everyone just throwing now very tacky looking almost early instagram-esque filters where it's just blown out colors uh this having sporting a very sepia kind of sunset tone yeah to it. a lot of golds a lot of gold hewing and yellows mm -hmm. yeah. definitely went for more warmer lens i didn't hate it i didn't feel like it was i don't know i felt like it was so intentional mm -hmm. and it had purpose so i was kind of more okay it wasn't somebody just trying to do something just to do it sure and it you know is I mean? a throwback to the era you know what i mean yeah it's, it's old-timey for everyone so yeah I, I get but that. definitely very heavily Warm hues, golden yeah. gold hues, yeah. Absolutely. And this is also, I mean, quick side tangent, an era of film that I'm kind of curious about, maybe mm -hmm. late 90s to very early 2000s, before we hit like the hyper gritty uh, mid 2000s with like Dark Knight and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of interested to call heads or tails on what is the best of these heavy digital uh, films, you know? Well, what? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I guess you're right. Well, I, why, why do I even... We are <laughs> Uh, next time, I'm just avoiding the notes. Lord of the Rings. Uh, just every note. Anything. I wonder. I look back to the 1999 to early 2000s. Whatever the answer is, it's Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Um, but you're right. It, it pops off really in 99 with the first, with Star Wars returning. Mm, sure. And just sure. The, the maniac that is George Lucas and digital. Um, now, that looks god awful when you go back to it. Uh, yeah, right. For I mean, a variety of reasons. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just... It's truly terrible. Yeah. But otherwise, you have uh, the three Star Wars movies, the yep. reboot. You have the three Lord of the Rings. You have the Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm, true. Those are true. the three biggest when it about. comes to digital, yeah. I would say, in that in that kind of time frame. Sure. Absolutely. But, but Weta, I think, really takes it. Mm. Just that in-house Weta crew. I think just it leaped over Lucas. Uh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and visual design, uh, both like the, the fidelity of everything. Yeah. But I, before we, <laughs> before we this... circle the drain on <laughs> Lord of the Rings, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is uh, allegedly based off of Homer's Odyssey, <laughs> which is something that we, both laughed uh, we, were, we were cracking up the whole film about. Uh, and I would say much like we've been covering with um, Shakespeare screenplay flips, uh, it pairs it with a stylized setting. I felt that actually very useful to cover so many kind of literary modern screenplay flips uh, going into this. Uh, I say allegedly with uh, with Homer 
because it's really hard to call heads or tails on the inspiration. This is certainly structured as an odyssey. There are certainly some overt references like the siren scene. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel like it was more than a small nod. Um, yeah. I, I haven't... I don't think I've ever finished the Odyssey, uh, you know, any time in my life. Uh, so I, I, I can't really call it actual, you know, whether it's truly, you know, one to one, or has more than just a small nod. But, right. Uh, feel free to write in, folks, if uh, uh, you have some expertise of <laughs> of Greek epics. And had we been big Odyssey guys, you mm. know, I feel like. Maybe this film would hit a little bit higher and be better. Oh, but sure. You gotta we, uh, be, the appreciation. You got to be in the in that group. Just mm. like this is how I feel about we just covered my own private Idaho. Mm. I'm really not the biggest William Shakespeare guy. Uh, sure. Yeah. Had I known William Shakespeare or mm-hmm. what they're taking from William Shakespeare from there, I, mm-hmm. I probably would have enjoyed the film more. And I'd yeah. be like, oh, I could see why they went for this stylistically. I, this is following the epic or whatever. But sure, sure. For this, it's... We weren't seeing it. We yeah. really weren't seeing it too much yeah, as far yeah. as a connection to Homer. Right, right. And the reason why I even describe it as heads or tails is I think a slight criticism I had for that, for 10 Things I Hate About You, was that when it was the lines from Shakespeare, it was so blatantly obvious. Oh, sure, sure. Here, the blend is much better, but then I can't really tell. So, um, I don't know. A and little bit of, of give and take. Yeah, and I was kind of giving uh, long leash because maybe arc of the story as well. There's mm. things there that were just not... Right. The most versed. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. You more than me, for sure. Yeah. I would say that stylized setting, though, is, uh, or the stylized spin is around these three escapees from the chain gang uh, traveling on the promise of buried treasure while a lawless lawman hunts them down repeatedly. My hot take while watching this, which had us both dying laughing, was that this is really the 1930s version of Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the group is always for- focusing on short-term games, often self-sabotage their own success. Uh, out of the trio, George Clooney plays the slick-talking know-it-all, uh, and was probably my least fave. Um, he was just a bit annoying here, and and like you commented while we were watching, Tom, um, might have just been a slight miscast. Uh, any mm-hmm. thoughts on on who you would want to fill that with? Um, I don't know. I just feel like George Clooney is going for a certain character, and mm-hmm. the way he's talking. Uh, I'm trying to think. I've seen that character before in a film, and mm. I can't. It's not popping in the front of my head, right? But it's in there somewhere where it's just like, oh, this was a character already, sure. Um, but someone who can just. Someone who could do the lines better. Even in that crew, <laughs> in that crew, I feel like Brad Pitt would have almost done a better job. Oh, sure, sure. George Clooney, how did you describe him in this? Like a uh, quick talking slick? Uh, know it all. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 Eddie. And it's, right. <laughs> but also trying this old timey kind of, he's, you know, yeah. doing something with his speech a little bit different as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some people I feel like are going to watch it, like Clooney. We both were like, Mm. We could do without the Clooney. Yeah, there was there was a gut reaction to it. So uh, second in line is John Totoro, uh, the hot tempered neurotic one, uh, Ed with two D's. Uh, <laughs> and, and for all those listening who don't know Ed, Ed and Eddie, oh but, come on! Well, I mean, we, you know, there's a lot of people that listen. A Cartoon Network show that last <laughs> that lasted probably what three seasons really? Oh, but Ed, Ed and Eddie's classic. It's, it's classic for you and me. <laughs> for people much younger, much older, I'm not so sure. Well, it's it's three. Scheming boys, and <laughs> guess what? That's old brother. Where art thou? Uh, 
Uh, I would say Totoro is pretty solid in this, even though uh, I was kind of a bit confused as his accent switch up uh, halfway through the film. Uh, really yeah. not sure what went on there, but uh, I, I'm kind of chalking <laughs> up to maybe me not paying attention. Maybe close or enough. because we didn't finish the Odyssey by Homer. <laughs> right. But right. you're right. He does do like a, he changes this raspiness in his voice. Yeah. And it's maybe like what? Was, what did we miss? Maybe it was to try to cover up his like. Identity? I don't. I don't. Regardless. And, and finally, Tim Blake Nelson uh, plays our lovable doofus uh, Ed with one D. The easily my favorite of the movie. I feel like he just steals so many scenes either by getting the last punchline with his kind of dumb routine, or just having the most charm among two other kind of unlikable characters. I feel like he kind of wins by default. Okay. And sometimes uh, my suggested trademark around weird characters though, is flawlessly shown in, I mean, really this entire film, but in the regular co- collaborator, Stephen Root, uh, playing a hysterical and, and honestly grotesque uh, radio DJ in the South. <laughs> uh, um, this, that's also where this setting does some heavy lifting. And I feel like um, where this trademark of the Coen brothers, that they love these weird characters. Mm-hmm. They love interesting cast to those weird characters. The setting is just able to be filled with copious oddball actors and characters that help define the unique feel to everything. I think that was a positive of the film. A big part of the film. You have John Goodman coming in. Mm-hmm. He's practically chewing the scenery almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even like the, the, the bit characters, the uh, yeah, absolutely. The assistant to the to the governor and, and whatnot. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Everyone is certainly their own over-the-top character. Yeah. Like, no doubt. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. It, it's true. That, that made it, that helped the movie move along. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's where my, my main praise goes, that it's uh, it feels unique and almost that these interesting cast choices, uh, again, I, I can't even imagine what the casting call would be for some of these small bit <laughs> roles. Like, you got an uncle? I don't right. know. Is he weird? <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, that's where I think there was an appreciation in the film of what they were done and a match to the setting. Um, the way the film doesn't work for me is in kind of like a goofy cornball energy that uh, is the underlying to near nearly every scene. I think uh, the bite of this story is lost a good deal, which compared to other Cohen films, uh, I, I know they can achieve both. I think this Odyssey structure is also molasses for the pacing of the film. I can't really call any cuts I would make. Again, it's under two hours, folks, but it's all in the feel. It's all in how this feels so much longer, and I think it really does boil down to the structure not being aimless. They're obviously going towards the treasure, but we have almost like four small restarts in... Uh, a plot that really never got its gallop going. Yeah, it, uh, it's a lot of the same type of scenes. Mm-hmm. Very, I, I told you when we were watching it, it feels like vignettes almost. Yeah, yeah. Using the same characters, mm-hmm. hitting upon different characters. But they're all small settings. Mm. You know what I mean? They're in one location, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they're both, and they're all roughly the same amount of time. Yeah. You know, so it almost feels like you're skipping along. But when it's one after another after another, mm. with our three main guys, new characters coming in, it just kind of feels like rinse and repeat. Yeah. Which really makes made the movie feel way, way longer than, yeah. than it actually is. Like we like. said, it's an, it's an hour and 47. <laughs> it oh, it feels like it's two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, like, I would no agree. No joke. I would definitely agree. Cause if gets, not more. Because it gets to the point where it's just like, okay, we're in okay, another one, another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. It just keeps on going, and it gets a little tiresome. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I feel like it's a shame because for all this start and stop to the, to the pacing, the ending, no spoilers, it was kind of a little bit of a, you know, 
they just throw it up in the air and then guess what everything is solved you know it kind of just kind of uh, uh, the solution was in itself a hand wave yeah. which uh, I've critiqued plenty of movies for uh, and I feel like here it hits as well as a little bit uh, lackluster. Yeah, I kind of look at it so much. Not whether things are solved or not up in the air. I kind of just look at it as a lot of times you want a bang finish, and this mm. was a fizzle. Yeah, yeah. That's, this had no rasp. And when it was right, right. And when it was a little bit pulling teeth, especially once when you're in the second half of the film. Yeah. And it's still going and going. It's just like, all right, you know, it's it's. I don't know. Like, did you waste my time a little bit? <laughs> kind sure. of feeling. Sure, sure. Uh, I completely understand that. But um, so, folks, uh, maybe not the strongest entry for the Coen Brothers, but uh, a lot of that comes from how high caliber. Uh, their other films are. I'd happily put this among the B tier of their movies, and specific parts perfectly shows what they're all about, uh, but maybe not the one you go to to really identify that for the first time. This is in that B tier, something that if you're already hooked, you would go into. With that said, we're going to go ahead and give Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 2000, a 61. 61, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of right there with you. Mm. Uh, like I said, it's no feeling to uh, give it give it a two shoes or anything, mm-hmm. but it just it just was it was lacking. Yeah, you know, and it's even like raising Arizona, where it could hit for some and really not for others. Mm. It's hard for me to say anything outwardly great about the film. Really, but at the same time, I don't feel like bashing it either. Yeah, sure, sure. It's the blondness, of right? Because uh, yeah. there's good elements, but there's just some. Some that just continue on and on and mm. on. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I didn't love the main three, I'll be honest. Sure. I almost think I liked Clooney the best just because I think if he's not on screen, uh, there is no film, essentially. Oh, sure. The plot's not moving. Then. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of how I feel a little bit. Right. But anyway, okay. So, oh, brother, we're right there with a 61%. Very good, Vin. So, let's jump to 2008. And for anyone who got the newsletter, I messed up because I thought you were going to do Barton Fink (laughs) in 91, (laughs) and you didn't do that. You ended up doing Burn After Reading in 2008. And then it was my mistake again. I wanted to stay away from this film mm. because I thought it was Matt Damon heavy. No. But it was Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> so I really messed up on that one. <laughs> it's a shame because I think you would have really enjoyed this film. I, I think so. <laughs> I, and we're going to find out. Uh, Burn After Reading, set it up a little bit, and how'd you like it? Uh, well, uh, I'm honestly shocked I have not seen this before. Uh, two th- 2008 lands it during the prime of me getting into movies. Uh I guess I was a little bit too busy watching The Dark Knight in theaters for the 13th time. Uh, <laughs> Did not, you do 13? Not, not kidding on that. Wow. Yeah, I'm not exactly proud of that either. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> 2000... a colossal waste of money. <laughs> uh, 2008, just, this is just one year after No Country. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and and you're, you're right in line with where my thoughts are and why I would kind of expect to see this film because, you know, their follow-up of No Country of Old Men, a must-watch. For me, I feel like when looking from a bird's eye at their filmography, this kind of does mark a little bit of a decline in popularity of their films. Not necessarily quality, uh, but popularity. I feel like nothing has reached that peak again. But even with uh, two years later, with the remake of True Grit, while a movie mm. that both of us enjoy, yeah. um, it feels like they never reached those heights again of 2007. And this is just kind of no. in that peak. You, you had, far, yeah, exactly right. You, you had Fargo, mm-hmm. and then you had No Country. Yeah. And you haven't got anything since. People do really like the True Grit. Mm-hmm. I think even for other critics or people who don't love Westerns even, mm-hmm. kind of still like really True Grit. Sure. Especially because it's one of the few modern day Westerns that we have. Right, right. No less, maybe slightly even better than the original as well. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people would say that. You're right, though. I mean, I think that kind of got back 
a little bit, but other than that, it's been their other films were much more quiet mm. when they came out for sure. Exactly, exactly. Both uh, critically nominated and whatnot, yeah, uh, and, and and just general popularity. Uh, Burn After Reading is a scattered, paranoid comedy, smack dab in the middle of the intelligence community in Washington, D.C. Uh, I would say the first stretch of the story is drastically different, giving us time with the CIA angle and matching the tension that would come with a, a story around that. But as more and more characters get introduced, uh, the best way I can describe it is that the average IQ kept on dropping among the cast, (laughs) or among these characters, at least, that we watch. Uh, And slowly the tone shifts from kind of a espionage thriller to comedy. Uh, Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt play the bottom of that IQ curve, and uh, when they find a confidential CD containing state secrets, they attempt to ransom it for a juicy reward. I would say, though disjointed at first, uh, the characters exist in a messy net of hookups and connections that is constantly shifting throughout the movie. And um, this is not a plot that I could predict at any point, which I think is good because... Mm -hmm. While it's maybe not a great metric depending on what someone has seen and what they haven't, and you know, being able to predict a, a story, I feel like this one really had a lot of twists and turns in a, in a good way. They weren't cheap in any kind of way. I wouldn't compare this film to too much, both within and without uh, the Coen brothers' work, uh, but the many characters and the sloppy crime absolutely is in the realm of Fargo, uh, and I would say in a very good way. Mm, Okay. uh, That, uh, once again, that theme of small-time crime does not sacrifice in stakes just because it's small-time. If anything, it has more stakes because... This crime means everything to these, you know, these crooks, backwater characters, idiots, you know. Uh, it's all they have. Yeah, it's ve- and that's very Fargo-esque. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, I would say the comedic beats are a bit slower on this one, dulled by uh, the, this mixed tone. Uh, I think my hot take with this one was it was like House of Cards filled with idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with the heavy DC vibes and whatnot. But uh, uh, the initial ransom call... I think was my favorite moment in the film and not to show my nerd card too much but was the closest thing to a botched charisma check in D&D I I could ever imagine (laughs) on film (laughs) I wish I knew what that meant (laughs) right right just trying to convince them bad dice roll yeah it's it is is really funny and it's between uh, McDormand and, and Pitt I do think the film shoots itself in the foot a bit with this split tone I'm glad uh, this was the polar opposite of a typical comedy, both for the time and now. I mean, this is kind of a very unique comedy. But in that, also struggles to be hysterically funny. Struggles to reach that point that's, that I would say, oh, you got to watch this. This is you know excellent, right. excellent mm-hmm. comedy. Despite there being a lot of depth here and, and, and also, again, very unique. What really worked for me here, though, was performances and a key to why the movie worked at all, I think. Uh, this might be one of my favorite John Malkovich performances, believe it or not. All right. Uh, I, it, I don't want to put you on the spot and name them, but uh, I feel like there's less than <laughs> 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 no, I gotta name them. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But well, well, we talked about recently re- which one it's not. Right. But. <laughs> <laughs> that on the wraps. Yeah. His, his intelligence as the CIA analyst mm. matched with his rage. His rage is just so, like, knives. <laughs> he's, he's so good. It's so entertaining to watch him just freak out. Pop at every, off. Yeah. yeah. It's just... It's, it's just so fantastic. Um, Francis is stellar as always. And once again, like I, like I said before, it really had me reflecting on, uh, is there a role I don't enjoy her in? Here she's able to embody that low-stakes crime that, frankly, she's on the other end of in Fargo. Uh, and uh, that magic just kind of continues in this movie. Um, and although brief, every J.K. Simmons scenes in this is golden. Uh, he's the, so he's some, dep- I don't even know if he's given like official title, but he's some department head in in the cia and the satire around cia leadership is just mm, is so good it's so funny this really uh, is my movie yeah 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 exactly that's what i was like damn uh, i hope we didn't watch barton fink you know <laughs> no, just, just didn't watch either of them yeah yeah you know it's so funny too because i told you the other night i watched dune and then i watched moneyball so <laughs> right. I, I watched my brad pitt movie for the week <laughs> <laughs> your daily pit, one. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, some some really solid stuff, and I think I think the performances, uh, in addition to being a nice cast, I think all the performances are really stand out, and that's where this comedy is saved, where the actual filmmaking of the Coens, uh, and especially when it comes to tone, is a little confused, a little bit of a stumble there. Okay, folks, I would recommend this a bit higher if you're a comedy fan, uh, especially if you're tired of the formulas done to death in the last two decades. Uh, uh, Burn After Rating struggles a bit in dispersing its laughs equally during the runtime, but without a doubt is a unique experience that blends espionage thriller stakes with a lovable idiocy that really, really does keep you guessing. With that said, we're going to go ahead and give Burn After Reading 2008 a 69. Okay, 69. Doesn't crack the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I think it was... If some other things fell into place, maybe, but it was, a little it, off. It it was, was really good otherwise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 69 is still a good movie. I'm excited to watch it now, mm. and I think I'm going to take some time and, and watch this. This just falls into this pit of films that I never sat down and watched. Mm. Yep. And it's this crew, and it's this time frame as well. It's like the men who stare at goats. Yeah. Thank you for not smoking. Oh, sure. Yeah. And there was, it's just two, there's actually two more running through my head. But once it just kind of disappear, mm. and it's one of it's like I'll get around to that. Yeah, St- stuff you always see on Netflix pop up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cast in this seems incredible. Great callbacks. I, I think you are lasered into where this kind of fits as well, even comedically. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because so. sometimes it hits or it yeah. doesn't, or maybe it's your sense of humor, or it's just completely not. Yeah. As well. Absolutely. Because uh, the Coens definitely have a sense of humor. It's just oh, for sure. Which humor is it? Right. Is it is it corny, hokey, or is it very sharp and smart? Right. Right. Um. So and they can dance that as well yeah but okay burn after reading with a 69 percent let's move on to the one i am most excited to actually to mm. hear your yeah one and again i always wanted to approach this film mm. and just never sat down and done it and and, and watched it because i always feel like it's going to be more intense or more of a drama or more of a thinker mm. and i don't know but really going through the cohen now this week and in the past since yep. the podcast it's like man these guys are like fun and there's always a comedy element yeah, to most of their films, so maybe this is just easier watch and more fun. But Breezy runtime? Absolutely. It's 2013's Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. and this gives Oscar Isaac a big leading role. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was in some stuff beforehand, but this really introduces Oscar Isaac. Mm-hmm. It's two years before he's in the reboot of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, so mm-hmm. this is really where it starts to happen for yeah. him. Yeah. Inside Lewin Davis, though, uh, what is it about, Vin? 
And how'd you like it? Uh, well, I totally get what you mean as far as some of the intimidation with this film because this is vi- heavily critically pra- praised. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is like, people think it's a perfect movie. But when it came uh, out, it, it wasn't like a No Country for Old Men. No. It didn't have this big cultural thing. Mm-hmm. It was like in the weeds. Yep. But everybody who really likes film or critics are just mm-hmm. like, oh, Inside Lou and Davis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I get that as, uh, it, just in general as kind of an intimidating factor sometimes. Like, do I really want to turn on my brain when I watch this? Right. Exactly right. I, I, I'm happily here to say that in kind of two directions it, it maybe don't believe the hype on that i feel like if anything it kind of shot my watching in the foot expecting so much more um, uh, yeah and, and in that once again just kind of is uh it's a very coen brothers comedy that uh maybe blends in more of kind of a depressive seriousness tone to it but still uh, kind of about these same jokes that they've always made. And that's what characters. I, that, like putting it on the site, I'm, I'm getting that from it. And mm. I think another reason why when I've seen clips or whatever, maybe a small trailer, it's also, you know, with their coloring, it seems very dark and almost mm. depressing film. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it is It is meant to be a depressing film, but I feel like in that it's uh, not satire. It's, it, it it's is, a Coen it, Brothers. It, yeah, exactly. It's a depressing comedy. <laughs> so This is the only film that I've only partly seen. And uh, in 2013, that really does mark a year that I got serious about watching films and this was kind of always floating around on a flash drive I had and and on your notes of the look of the film I would say something about the color palette and the feel of what was on screen always had me saying like yeah I'll watch that someday yes uh, yes uh, so like it was, it was visually interesting enough where I was just like I'll get around to it so today's the day <laughs> I probably also probably started and stopped it a dozen times as well so maybe that's not <laughs> that's, that, that sabotaged my watching a large part of my fascination belongs to cinematographer Bruno De Bono, uh, who continued to work with the Coens on Buster Scruggs and Macbeth, and he gets the Oscar nom for this as well. I feel the lonely indifference that this film tries to capture is all in the cold tinge of every scene. In that way, kind of, I was expecting so much more of a depressive story, so much more of a drama Mm -hmm. than what it is, where in actuality it it shares the same comedic beats and quirky characters that uh, pepper any of these films. Uh, So that's where I mean kind of, I want to almost say don't believe the hype. Just kind of watch it with the expectation of a Coen Brothers film. Okay. So, uh, Inside Lewin Davis takes place during a bitter winter in 1961 New York, giving us a struggling look at the folk scene of Greenwich Village. Oscar Isaac plays our couch-surfing guitarist that is a, I mean, just a destined loser. Uh, From losing friends' pets to uh, bad record deals, he has no business sense, and worst of all, knocking up his friend's girl... It's, it's just he is a loser. We're watching a, a, not a downward spiral, but kind of a stumbling adventure. The film, or rather, story, isn't doesn't have a plot around the most interesting time of his life, and something that I've always referred to as what makes a good screenplay. Is this the single most important moment that we need to be looking at this character? Mm-hmm. Uh, and rather, instead, the runtime is about kind of languishing in a losing streak and a semi-serious comedy for a literal starving artist. 
once again, my initial thoughts here, as they were with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, was kind of expecting more of a dive into the actual 1960s folk scene in New York. Uh, but once again, is more of a stylistic bo- backdrop than anything uh, with a small shout out to Bob Dylan at the end. Okay. So, okay. Um, yeah. there's a lot of music in this one, much more than Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. Uh, it doesn't serve more than its story. It doesn't serve a historical or uh, kind of a informative piece in okay. that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just more for feeling and vibe? Uh, yes, exactly. Okay, that's the... That's... And the setting. The setting itself is attached to this music, so right, that's why right. we okay. have it infused. Uh, the tone of the story is kind of a misfit comedy uh, with Oscar striking a balance between pathetic and, uh, I mean, honestly speaking, the most normal among a usual Cohen cast of wild cards and insane people so he's in this kind of lonely uh this lonely loser vibe uh and it's not their typical film either i think this echoes some of big lebowski only much sadder and much more serious uh but the type of comedic beats are around oscar isaac's character either being the most normal or the most weird uh, and I, that, to my memory, we covered it on the podcast as well, is what Big Lebowski felt like as far as kind of a comedic structure. There. Right, right, okay. Ultimately, I like this film a little bit more, which I know might be controversial to say, but honestly, both of these films are reg- regarded much, much higher than where they rank for me personally. This and Big Lebowski, I mean, critical darlings uh, for they to are. be sure. Honestly, I forgot about Big Lebowski, yeah. which, which we covered also on episode 30. Oh, okay. Um, if people want to go back and check out uh, that. In fact, it's the episode where we did everything everywhere all at once. As oh well. wow! Look at that. But uh, I, for, you're totally right about that stretch. Now, mm. when that that Fargo, Big Lebowski, mm. and then ending it with No Country, yeah. that they might never. I mean, what a stretch! Sure, sure. Like what a ten year stretch they had. Yep, uh, absolutely. With things in between, also, I'm finding that I might not be the biggest Coen Brothers fan. Okay. I think I like them, but Mm -hmm. to the praise that so many people have, the culture that they have, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I'm quite on board. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you are, particularly maybe on maybe this, but the Big Lebowski. Yeah. And no brother even. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, I mean, I I would actually have to go back and listen to the review on Big Lebowski. I do remember being a little bit more harsh on it uh, than maybe even it But I think rightfully so, because when I go back and watch it, Uh that's kind of where I am. Sure. And I don't know if that's a product of watching it in the 2020s. Or over high. Uh, Absolutely. Or, yeah, yeah. Do you remember what you gave Big Lebowski? I think high 60s. I'm hoping 69. Because you, gave any- a, you gave it a 69 uh, in the bird after reading score. Excellent, excellent. Well, I, I actually kind of like that pairing. You know, the, the, both both in ways. I, I do think that is a little harsh, if I'm being honest, on Big Lebowski. Something that is uh, revered as okay. one of the best comedies of all time. I don't think know? it's that harsh. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I like, you know, you're on my side, Tom. <laughs> if I don't got you, I ain't got nobody. You know? <laughs> now, I can't turn on these mics myself. You giving Layer Cake a 69, we can have a conversation on that. <laughs> we'll wait till the mics are off. We'll right, right. Um, but there is, there is a... There is a like a Cohen Brothers constant movement, mm. you know what I mean? And there's a hype, mm-hmm. and they are so critically praised. Right. You know, like big time. Yeah. And that's where this Lou and Davis comes up, too, mm. where it's almost intimidating. It's just like, I'll watch it at some point when I'm ready. But and, if and, anything, uh, and I think, you know, as we kind of both have come to, these are simpler films than, than you expect. I think the, yes, the critical praise is intimidating, but actually watching the films, they're breezy, they're light, uh, and... Uh, you know, you're not putting a ring on it. It's under two hours. Right. That and some, sometimes just the story itself is very simple. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at Fargo and The Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, it, it's funny. I'm kind of right there with you. I th- even think that your Fargo uh, score, like I would not rate it that high, mm, me personally. Oh, really? And I think you are with the masses on that. Uh, yeah, but uh, definitely a bias showing with Roger Deakins. I mean, I think that's one of the best shot films. Like, oh, ever. you adored that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's always that that uh, <laughs> that parking lot with snow. Mm, yeah, I'd frame it. Mm, so good. But um, I don't know. That's kind of what I'm finding out about the Coen Brothers. Doing more yeah. research, and we have covered a few of their films already. Sure, sure. It's interesting. It, it, it's interesting. But with this, with Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. because it is praise, but it's not the praise of a Big Lebowski. Right. Uh, and again, I think if anything, avoid maybe looking at some of that for folks at home because I, I feel like I was expecting a lot more than, and not mm. that this was a bad movie whatsoever. Right. I feel like sometimes when something is really good, I have to kind of focus on why it's not better. Uh, in my in my review, sure, yeah, yeah, uh, but also that comes with maybe just like put expectations aside mm-hmm. and and like we always say, watch the movie, yeah. just watch the movie on its own, you know, context aside. Even the other side of the coin of where this film is uh, excellent and gets a lot of praise uh, and and worth the praise is the musical performances in the film, uh, which are not only. Um, demanding, but emotionally resonant, and uh, the most that we're getting on the serious side of this. Um, so much time with Oscar Isaac's performance, we're just we're kind of waiting for the next quirky character to be introduced. Let me tell you, I think the the real depressive side of what this story is about, uh, the loner story, kind of the folk wanderer that has become a, um, icon of this late, of this early 60s era and mm-hmm. early 60s scene, it's in Oscar Isaac's music performance. You quite literally see him pouring out his soul in, in a lot of ways. It's honestly, the most shocking aspect of this is, uh, Isaac doesn't get Oscar recognition for this. Um, you know, not only is this showing a amazing singing performance, but a key piece falls on his shoulders. I would say the music in the film has to highlight the differences and thus and you know the very subtle differences of 1960s folk stylings. And uh, folks, that's not really easy <laughs> because it all sounds. Exactly the same, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, showing us good and bad music is part of a lot of the co- comedic setup here of what is good folk music, of why Oscar Isaac thinks he's too good for certain things. Uh, but in that requires a lot from our lead uh, in the sense to show us the good music. Right, show us, right. wow, this is why it's kind of a tragedy that he's not being found or he's not being discovered. So I think a lot of credit goes towards this performance. I mean, I didn't look up what was in the running uh, for 2013 or 2014, but uh, really shocked he did not get the nom. This is a total snub scenario because, again, what we, what is required from him musically and then the responsibility of what that means in the plot, in the screenplay, on his shoulders, I think it wouldn't work without a solid right. music performance. Yeah, it was nominated for two Oscars, one in uh, cinematography right. and one in achievement and sound mis- uh, mixing. Nominees didn't win. <sighs> sure. I mean, I, so I guess sound mixing makes sense, but it, you know, it's, it's one of those sound technical. Mixing, yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's not the juicy, yeah. you know, it's not the, it's not the hot awards. That's so. good to hear that that really holds up in the film, though. Yeah, 
absolutely. I, and and let me say this much. Uh, like I was maybe kind of interested in this for Adam Driver's inclusion. If you if, yes, if Oscar Isaac's right. is like a um, you know like a pet actor that you like following or, yeah. or whether we it's both like Wars, him. We're both yeah, we're both Oscar Isaac fans. Yeah. Uh, in April when we do uh, the Alex Garland, we'll cover him in Ex Machina. He's great in that. Oh yeah, he's great. Um, so, but yeah, when when it comes down to that, I think like this is such a great performance from Oscar Isaac and if you haven't seen this before and you are an Oscar Isaac fan you have just such a wonderful opportunity to watch him absolutely kill it on screen so excellent uh, I would say this is really solid though maybe a bit of a snoozer for some but again it's it's intentionally that it's intentionally a depressive type of thing if you enjoy maybe like a sunshine of uh, sunshine of the uh, eternal, eternal mind. spotless, spotless mind, mind. <laughs> oh, I, always, I always mess that one up if you like uh Slightly depressive comedies, I think this, right in that wheelhouse. Uh, shout out to John Goodman and Adam Driver's side characters. I would say that is some top-tier Coen Brothers side wild cards. Side bits, yeah. Yeah, uh, and if anything, I feel like this John Goodman performance wins of the John Goodman performances <laughs> this week. Yeah, we so. should say John, John Goodman is totally the Coen Brothers Quentin Tarantino, or, or no, Tarantino Sam Jackson. Mm, yes, that's a great description. I didn't realize how heavy John Goodman was. I, and right, for right. the Coen Brothers films. Absolutely. And never, never lead? I, uh, I'm spitballing that, but I don't think no, he's No, I don't think he's ever right. the lead. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> yeah. But a uh, really solid film. Again, uh, I would say this one more than most. Uh, if if what we've been talking about, if the styling, the setting, or, or most importantly, the music focus um, sounds good to you, jump into this one. We're going to go ahead and give Inside Lewin Davis, 2013, a 75 on the dot. Wow, 75, Finn. Yeah, very good. That's good to hear. Yeah. And like I said, I still have this. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. When I check it out. <laughs> but especially for an early Oscar performance. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Because, one, I really like him. Like, he's he's one of the few. He's probably like 40 now. I don't even know. Or like, <laughs> right, I yeah. I think he might be even like 45. He's not like this young a guy, guy. You're right. A guy that definitely is acting young, much younger, you know. <laughs> right. Um, he's, a, he's paired up practically with teens with, you know, with, with the Star Wars uh, movies. Right. So. But he plays it off well. I just think he's a very good, I'll say it now, I'll, he's a very good under 50s actor, I guess. <laughs> But um, 75%, great score. Uh, I know it's just 2013 film, and it's it's around. You can you can find it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, would a good double header with this be Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges? Ooh, I don't think I've actually ever seen Crazy Heart, but I like it for the guitar focus, singer songwriter. Singer songwriter, down and out. Kind yeah, of. yeah, 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 absolutely. Just trying to get a hit. I think that's good. Okay, so that is dry. Uh, no, that's Inside Lewin Davis <laughs> with a 75%. Before we move on to our newly released film, folks, we just want to remind you all that Vin and I are going off the value for value model uh so the daily ratings we're not going to stick advertising in your face whether it be useless ad reads on the podcast we're not gonna take you know commercial breaks uh, we're not gonna have pop-up ads or, or just banner ads and on this site that's just gonna bog it down and, and make it look terrible uh, we're also not gonna do paywalls or tier structures uh we're not gonna have subscriptions sure. the whole point is is that vin and i produce all of this content you know we do the podcast once a week we have the companion piece which is the website the to go along with everything 
it's all there. It's all out there. Uh, but are you finding it valuable? You know, is that value in your pocket? We ask you, can you give us value back in our pocket? So it's through monetary support and through donations. So you go to the dailyratings.com, you head to the donations tab, and uh, any amount that you want, any amount of value that you're getting, you send our way. Uh, everyone's on their own budgets and everyone's, you know, their own money and their own finances or their own thing. Mm-hmm. Five bucks this week may be a lot of money to you. Uh, 500 bucks may not be much money at all to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's on their own thing. So you you can make whatever donation amount you want. We do have some fun set donations. Like we have, uh, you know, you can buy a movie ticket. You can become a godfather. Join the Gump Club. Some fun set stuff. <laughs> but the point is, it's the value for value button there as well. You just click that and it's any amount of value that you want. Uh, you send it in our way. Uh, when you do donate, you can send in a donation note. You can do it through a PayPal box that you can click. Or you can email us at tom.vin at the daily ratings. Uh, you just email us a donation note and that could be your question comments, critiques on the podcast or the website. Um, and literally, it could be an ask us anything. It's whatever you feel like you need to address with us. You go ahead and send that in because right now, this this is the producer segment. This is when we're going to read it. And mm. whatever you write, we're going to read. Whatever you let, let, Let's focus on that. Uh, you got me thinking with calling back to some old scores. I mean... Maybe if let's say you're a hater of my scores, <laughs> if you're a hater of maybe coming off of some of the the shorts that we we posted on different social medias, understand. Rarely do you get the opportunity to uh, air out your hate mail on the product exactly. itself. So I mean, listen, you you may not want to support us monetarily, but <laughs> you got a hell of an opportunity to voice your opinion and have us have us react to it. So and it really is whatever you want. Send in your donation note. We'll read it here in the producer segment. Uh, you know, we see that the podcast is growing uh, more and more which is great to see mm-hmm. uh, anytime you can just get us in the conversation uh, that's where we want to be so you hear people talking about or bitching about Rotten Tomatoes you just hear you just hear people talking about other people's movie rating podcasts mm-hmm. uh, just get us in there you know if you're enjoying it uh, that's another way to produce as well you know, this is a different way of doing podcasting, the V for V, the value for value model, um, because you're so used to listening to advertising on podcasts. Mm. The more you listen to shows that do this model, the more you start to hate the other ones. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, I was just thinking about, I was listening to a podcast, and I, I like the hosts, I like this show, mm-hmm. but they were going on about like, oh, we have such great, we have such great relationships with our advertisers, and we yeah. appreciate them so much. Yeah. And it's like, I want to have a good relationship. With the listen, but the yeah. people who listen to this with, podcast, with all of you, it's, just, it's so disgusting. Like they're so removed from mm. the court. It's just like, do you understand that you're just using us to like right. make money and to sell us pitch sure, ads in sure. our face for your money? Yeah, it's, right. And it's just, oh, we have such a good relationship. We appreciate our advertisers so much. It's screw the advertisers. <laughs> if you are listening, if you're yeah. enjoying it, remember this. Vin and I, it's not that much money. It is a lot of work to produce this every week. Yep. Just for the fact, if it's five films, Vin, it's paragraphs, paragraphs per film. <laughs> And all the back-end work, but I'm on the site. You know, it takes a lot of our time each week. So, you know, we are showing value. And again, we just ask, are you getting anything out of it? It's mm-hmm. value in your pocket. It's the dailyratings.com and head to the donations tab. We thank you all so much. We appreciate you. We don't appreciate mm-hmm. the advertising. We appreciate you. I just wish more people had that kind of mindset. You know, great ad read, Tom. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, Vince. So, do we want to make the special announcement now, or we'll sure? For the end? Yeah, we can do it now. Okay. So, all right. <laughs> Not about it. <laughs> so, uh, schedule wise, March is both busy and not busy. March fifteenth, though, is a little bit of a of a blank spot, uh, and I think also I'm, I'm worried about some. Things getting moved around as well. But 
we are going to be tackling something very big, something that even if it's not on your radar, it's big for Tom and I to kind of make our bones as reviewers. Obviously, we always reference must-watches. Always, I mean, uh, in the course of the podcast, there's been nothing over a 90. Literally. Uh, <laughs> not a single film. So. <laughs> uh, we've gotten very close. We tell Smell Success, uh, Fargo, of course. Mm-hmm. But with this Coen Brothers uh, episode, we are we are inspired by it. So uh, we are going to be covering No Country for Old Men in a very different styling. I don't know. What do you want to give some, some thoughts to that? Exactly. We have, so it is a new special that we never have done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't even come up with a name yet. We'll do that in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll finalize something. But whether it's a daily deep dive or a daily must-watch special, yep. Yep. Um, the whole point is we are spending an entire episode on one film mm. from the must-watches. Yep. So it might be an 85 and above or something like that, but we're tackling a 91% film, mm-hmm. uh, which is No Country for Old Men. It will be the entire podcast, and there will be spoilers. Yes. And Vin and I have some fun categories that we'll go through, some mm-hmm. favorite scenes, things like that. It's a really, it's a full-on look, a deep dive into a single film, which we've never done before. Yeah. Uh, we have our essential films. We kind of have our, our series films, like we do all the old Star Trek. Sure, sure. Uh, we've done all the Girl with the Dragon Tattoos. Yep, yep. Uh, this kind is of series spotlight, exactly. we call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whole different kind of special. And we're introducing it now with the Cohen brothers, and it'll be No Country for Old Men, just that that must watch special, and we're, mm. we're very excited for it. Yeah, absolutely, and and even to the course of um, uh, us kind of announcing this ahead of time, this of course will be in the newsletter as well. Uh, the the thought of doing spoilers comes from the fact that this is a must watch, and almost doesn't need the review. That's kind of our position that we're coming from. That the review is more so about dissecting the film. It should almost be, at least from our position, a given that you should watch it. So. Like we kind of yeah. even prepped for Scarface when you know he said it was going to be the only one good coming from De Palma. Uh, you know, uh, hopefully this is something that you can fit into the next couple two weeks uh, and and watch a phenomenal movie. Yeah, I think it was during the Tom Daly special. I might I might have even mentioned, hey, we have some new specials or something like that that some of you have might be excited for, especially from mm. what we heard because we have gotten feedback before where people have asked us to go longer on f- oh, or spoilers. Yeah, right, absolutely. Exactly. So this is our chance to do that as well. It's understood. It's a great film. Yeah, it's been on the website now since the website launch mm. so it's all known so it's just going to be fun as movie fans or somebody who hasn't approached the film yet still might be fun to listen to it mm. yep, yep. Uh, it's a whole different kind of show it's a new special we're introducing so that's two weeks from now yep. uh, because don't forget next week is kind of the, the episode we've been so excited for this entire year so far mm-hmm. which is Dune Part 2 mm. uh, which is going to be huge but in the spirit of the Coen brothers with this new film that just came out it's fun that we're going to be launching this and, and, and speaking honestly I, I love any time that we can kind of create almost like a book club aspect where uh, folks at home, you're you're watching along with us. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I really do enjoy that because whether it's uh, hearing feedback from, from all of you or even just kind of knowing that uh, there's appreciation going on for these films or maybe even, you know, bashing of these films. Right, right. I, I love that. And by the way, this is why we don't have Patreon. This this is what people would be like, hey, if you give us 50 bucks a month, mm. this is this is special access. Sure. It's none of that. It's yeah, going to be yeah. out in two weeks. Right. Everyone come and enjoy it. Yeah. You know? So, okay. But, all right. So, we'll keep going here. This is our now release. It's in theaters now. This is only Ethan Cohen, yep. not Joel Cohen directing. This is called Drive Away Dolls. Uh, done some research on this. But why don't you set up Driveway Dolls? This is the shortest film. It's under an hour and a half. Mm, uh, yeah. Set it up a bit, and let's talk about how'd you like it. Uh, well, I was kind of excited for this one. It's written by Ethan Cohen and his longtime co- collaborator, Trissa Cook. 
who has been the editor on countless of their films and yeah. no less Ethan's wife. The drop of Joel Cullen here from the project is minimal, however, uh, with this movie being right on brand for their style. And if anything, a callback to their earlier work with its uh, hokey, corny, comedic beats. Margaret Qualey is the co-lead here and is an actress I've enjoyed uh, seeing kind of peppered into things. Um, a pretty large role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, a recent bit part in Poor Things, and even the video game front with uh, Kojima's Death Stranding. Mm. By the way, super hyped for the sequel. I know it's probably going to be a little bit of garbage, but love Kojima. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's sporting a heavy Texas accent here. Uh, heavy, heavy, heavy Texas accent. Uh, so this is going to be a real coin toss. Um, uh, I wrote a lot about this. I deleted it all because I really do think it's just a coin toss of if it's going to work or not. I would lean towards... Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> That's the big question. Uh, I would lean towards no only because it's one of many decisions that make me just kind of scratch my head with this film. Okay. It's just... It's, well, it's one of many that I'm just like, why? Okay. <laughs> There's two questions I need to be asked. Sure, right? sure. Okay, so are you saying that does she need a heavy Texas accent? Or are you saying she's doing a really bad heavy Texas uh, accent? It's, yeah, no, it's on the execution, not necessarily okay, gotcha. why they wanted this Texas character. <laughs> gotcha. Because uh, if anything, that kind of makes sense a little bit. Okay. But, but yeah, it's it's yeah, it's yeah, more so the pull-off <laughs> on this. Geraldine Viswanathan is the other half of that. Uh, and against my initial thoughts, was pretty great. She comes from more of a teen crowd, so I didn't really have experience with her. Uh, this includes 2018's Blockers, which shares the screen with another teen star we covered two weeks ago, Catherine Newton. Here, she kind of steals the show, though, uh, being the emotional center of a very silly comedy, very raunchy comedy, and the focus of a plot for this kind of... Um, lesbian discovery adventure. That's really the elevator pitch of Driveaway Dolls. Uh, kind of a sexual awakening journey uh, to it uh, with the usual Coen Brothers wacky characters and crime spin, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the best shortest elevator pitch you could, you could <laughs> yeah. give it, but sums it up pretty well. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, well, the movie's a doozy, so, <laughs> so yeah, that works enough for you. Uh, you know, maybe give it a, give it a watch. I, I am going to kind of kind of bash a little bit here, though. Uh, Driveaway Dolls uh, opens up with Pedro Pascal nervously hiding a mysterious briefcase before he is brutally murdered uh, for an unknown reason. Behind the scenes, this briefcase is given a dead drop in the back of a rental car. And when our girls get that car mixed up, they are chased by criminal lackeys with and a mysterious high-stakes client after the goods. The plot around the chase, though, is kind of a side element, uh, mostly a side element, I would say, uh, as our two leads embark on a personal journey as well for their own reasons, mostly to escape scorned lovers. Margaret uh, plays the free, free spirit Jamie, who is pretty much going wherever the wind blows her and uh, where she can find others to hook up with. Uh, this plays into her character flirting the line with being a bad person, and honestly, I think that's where it created some good depth. That's where I think it's 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 in the execution. My critique, it's not in the writing. I actually like the character writing quite a bit with her. Okay, Geraldine plays the uptight Marion, uh, and while she may be out of the closet, is far more reserved compared to her loose counterpart. 
comedically, these two echo an age-old comedy duo styling where uh, one is wild and the other is the straight man, or should I say the straight woman, or should I say nothing at all? <laughs> I think the comedy is pretty solid on this one. Uh, less Coen Brothers in its pacing, believe it or not. This is <laughs> watching this film uh, and, and then reflecting on all five films in the notes. I was like, damn, this 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 is the one that feels the least <laughs> like Coen Brothers with all this building of uh, talking about Coen Brothers and the trademarks and whatnot. <laughs> it's so true. Um, but maybe not surprising. Joel's not, you know, part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Trisha writing, that's an entirely new voice, a female voice yeah. as well. So And I, it should say, maybe it's in your notes too, you have it later, but these two basically wrote this whole thing in yeah. the late 90s. Oh, no. Actually, could you give some uh, some thoughts to that? I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, oh. these two, they, <laughs> they, were, they were a couple and, you know, they got yeah. married and stuff yeah. or been, been uh, husband and wife for a while but they, like I said they basically wrote this and it was called it had the title of Drive Away Dykes mm. was the name and also just to allude towards maybe the more raunchiness yeah of it. yeah yeah but basically it was complete but I don't know how many different editions they went through uh-huh. as far as rewrites and things but sure. my my understanding is pretty much the story was done it was there in the can uh-huh. um, but they just did you know other projects and yeah. finally this worked out where it was time to do this mm-hmm. I don't know how big of a release it's getting it's in theaters it's not doing well at all I don't <laughs> sure. it wasn't even the top five as far sure, as and it, critics haven't been liking it as well for this raunchy spin, for sure. Right. So it's definitely a different type of Cohen film, and maybe that's why it's coming out now, mm. or kind of as Joel's doing his own thing and mm-hmm. worked with Apple. But this has definitely been something that they've been wanting to do for literally two decades or more. Mm, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, when researching Trisha, I think she had one other project that I didn't re- recognize. but uh, Writing-wise? Uh, writing, and I believe. Some some other production. Maybe it was Probably just film usual editing. editing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say instead of this... Nah, I mean, I, it's, it's definitely Coen Brothers in its pacing, especially for the chasing lackeys, the crime element mm-hmm. into it, uh, and the, the, the scrambling kind of slippery slope of, of everything. At the actual comedic beats, not so much. Instead, this reminds me more of an Edgar Wright comedy, especially Scott Pilgrim. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think that, that really is high praise, if you know my tastes here. Uh, this is an alt-teen spin, and it sets up scenes for our characters to kind of be a- awkward outliers, but lovable in their razor-sharp wit and comebacks. Uh, I think it speaks to the strength of the writing here that the first thought and a repeat thought I had constantly uh, in watching this film is that this is really destined to be a cult classic, much like how Scott Pilgrim is a cult classic. Interesting. In you think this will grow on people? I think so, absolutely. Okay. Put this on Netflix, it's going to do much, much better. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, the hmm. usual... I mean, actually, I haven't pointed it out in a while, but the divide between critics and audience yeah. scores. So. I'll ask that now too because you know when it has an hour and twenty four minute runtime, right. like like very very short. Yeah. Uh, one thing coming out of it, did you feel it was worth the price of a ticket, or is this a film that's uh, worth? Usually, I'm I'm Mister Go to the Go See It in sure. a Great Theater. Sure, sure. This is getting. I'm I'm, I'm feeling like you know you can maybe, might be able to wait for this one. I, I think so. I, I would definitely come at that as well because um, we'll get into it in just a second. But it is very raunchy. There's okay. a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of sex scenes in this one uh, but unlike I don't know unlike Poor Things or something like that we've covered recently or Saltburn mm, uh, the yeah. raunchiness is all for comedy and I feel like if anything uh, the theater experience was people kind of holding back on what they would laugh at normally so maybe like a private watching would be would be the way to go okay. uh, to avoid awkwardness and things like well, that well and it's a 20 bucks for a short film sure 
You know I, I mean, mean? Like a $20 ticket. Well, it's an interesting line, you know, of, of uh, cost analysis with uh, runtime versus the cost of the ticket. <laughs> I mean, sure hope Dune is uh, going to pay dividends. <laughs> 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 also, I've heard people with Dune, uh, Dune 2 saying yeah. that it's not long enough. Which I feel is a little ridiculous. Well, I mean, that's uh, typically not us. Yeah. I think I'm bit more okay with longer runtimes maybe than you. I think so. Although we're kind of both on this slash it, slash it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, is, you... that is very blood. As become <laughs> us. Yeah. But like I was so pro Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, sure, yeah. And if the movies, I'm like, hey, sit down. The Irishman, mm. now I'm holding the flag <laughs> yeah. for that one. And we'll continue. It's, it's never going to stop coming up. <laughs> it's never going to stop coming up. I mean, I'm Mr. Lord of the Rings. You just, why don't you just watch the extended edition? Right, and all three in a row then. <laughs> uh, it'll be funny with Dune next week. Total polar opposites. Yeah, yeah. This being an hour and 24. Sure. But that's good to hear that maybe it does. Maybe this is will have life on Netflix. I think so. I think so. In addition to some very sharp comedy writing, I think uh, my praise and honestly my hope of what I wanted to be possibly something ranking in the 70s uh, was in that comedy writing because I thought it was very funny and I thought the performance is very funny. Uh, it's just, it, it pains me to say it, but the filmmaking uh, was a mess. Uh, I feel like really? something was significantly lost on having Joel in the picture. Yeah, Joel. Joel, Joel, Joel was lost. <laughs> Joel, get away! <laughs> wow. You know, I don't know if Trisha, Trisha Cook is the Yoko Ono of uh, <laughs> the Beatles, but uh, but yeah, there's something else about it. And, and that's that's where kind of come to some of the criticism, folks. The heads up I have to give with this one is that um, it is very very dirty, funny but very, very dirty, um, with copious amounts of sex scenes and a raunchy tone feeling, frankly, right out of the early 2000s. And I mean, like, early 2000s, uh, like kind of American Pie, almost, uh, in ways. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We didn't cover it on the podcast, but last year's Comedy Bottoms uh, shows a rise in these kind of queer comedies, mm -hmm. uh, and a handful of others, certainly. On top of that, there is a trend of them all leaning a little bit raunchier, and that is 100% the case here, too. Uh, I would say where it maybe even gets a step further, it's, uh, I'll say this much, it's it's very much about technique. <laughs> so, you know, I think a private watch might be might be the way to go because uh, there was definitely a, a atmosphere to the film uh, and in the theater that uh, was not <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> you know, now all of this around my praise of, of performances, uh, comedy, it seems pretty good, but honestly, I wrestled a lot with this review uh, mm. in if the good outweighs the very bad. Uh, but I think uh, on that bad side, Ethan's filmmaking just might sink this whole movie for for audiences and wow. might have sinked the whole movie for me. Wow. Um, it's 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 a shame. Do you think um, it's it's half his filmmaking then also her poor accent? No. Because you, you started with it. You opened with I, a bad I accent. Did, I did just because it's so in your face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be the first thing everyone notices, even, even just watching the trailer. Uh, but uh, no, the the wow. real critique is has nothing to do, frankly, with the sex, nothing to do with the raunchy uh, or anything. It's all to do with these weird filmmaking quirks that Ethan has infused into this. Um, huh. The best elevator pitch, uh, well, I already gave an elevator pitch for this, so, <laughs> but I, I'll give another elevator pitch. Uh, it feels like a the, the throwback style that this is gunning for was almost taken too literally. Uh, it's like they're trying to do an old pulp B-movie 
not unlike a lot of their stuff, hmm. not unlike a lot of directors are successful at. Uh, recently, Alexander Payne, uh, Tarantino in perpetuity. Uh, <laughs> you know, he never stops. Uh, but uh, instead, this actually dips into a little bit of the bad side of what a real B-movie feels like. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, two main points. I really mean big points because these kind of, it synced almost everything for me. Uh, scene transitions are very cringy often paired with goofball sound effects. I'm talking like boings and springs, like, like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I honestly said that out loud in the theater, just like, (laughs) let's get on the same page, folks. What? (laughs) I mean, that that alone, uh, the first note, I was like, did this just shit the bed like <laughs> like this ruined so it. even like you weren't being like oh this that was uh artistically stylistic or, or cute or no it was like out of left what? field out of yeah. left field so such a cornball joke i feel like it would really like no audience is going to be about that okay maybe you know, like a weirdo would be like right. and, I, and i'm a weirdo but <laughs> uh, uh and then the second is uh another filmmaking quirk uh being these heavy Heavy psychedelic segments using the repeat track from Funkadelic Maggot Brain. You know, listen, I, I enjoy that track. I, I like Funkadelic. That's a dynamite album. Yeah. But these scenes eventually get explained. But while they are, while they keep popping up, it's like, what's going on? It's not only old effects like how they would make psychedelic sequences a la Willy Wonka. I was going to say Willy Wonka. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, like a psychedelic freakout type of scene. There's a good, like, three of them, and it's just, like, so unexplained while you're watching them. We eventually get there, but on the scenes themselves, uh, just a total distraction in a movie that's barely an hour 30. <laughs> it's like, what is going, get this rolling. Well, I know, <laughs> you know. What the knives are out, I'm, folks. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't think anyone watching this, especially maybe a more LGBTQ crowd going for this. Yeah. yeah. As the demographic, naturally. Uh, I, I think this movie is going to totally alienate people because it's for like old timers who wants these psychedelic sequences, who wants these like <laughs> leave it to Beaver transitions with boing like it's like it's wow. unreal. It was unreal. And the un- movie uh, destroyed itself because of these choices. Wow, and unrecognizable to the Cohen. Yeah, you know. Well, and that's where I'm really torn because in ways it was absolutely what we've been talking about for right. the last four films. In other ways, it was like, where's Joel? (laughs) (laughs) As anyone that has watched one of their films can tell you, is that this hokey cornball, you know, the the campiness, if you will, comes from how they make characters and whatnot, and that is the brand. So don't get me wrong, I feel like in ways it worked, but uh, in other ways, man, it really... It really is just a gut reaction that the film just kind of musters from every viewer. Uh, it's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, did I go on too long for no, that? No, no, we're good. <laughs> he's we're he's good. leaning back I in his chair. <laughs> he doesn't know if I'm, I'm going to continue to tear into it. <laughs> Overall, folks, I, I, I mean, really, when it comes down to this one, the best thing about this film is the Coen Brothers feel to the script, the crime spin, and the unique performances here. But equally, the worst thing about this is that same Coen quirkiness and oddball filmmaking that just comes off so corny here that I think it will just alienate any audience not in on the joke. 
We're going to go ahead and give Drive Away Dolls a 53. 53%. Tough one. Yeah, not the best movie. Not yeah. the best movie. Wanted it to be better in ways is better. In a lot of ways is better. But in a lot of ways, it's also much, much worse. Well, I'll say, uh, who, who who is, which <laughs> brother would you prefer? Uh, <laughs> an, exact, an exact 30% difference in score. The answer is Joel Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can listen to The Tragedy of Macbeth, oh, by the way. Yeah. That was episode 14, <laughs> But also, 17. what a different movie. <laughs> what are you talking about? A different movie. Uh, episode 17 of the podcast, if you want to listen to what just Joel Sinkley was able to do. Um, also on that was... Was the card counter with Oster Isaac and then, oh, good and, callback. and Pig with um, Nick Cage? Nick Cage. Card counter wasn't that good though. Pig was great. No, Pig. Yeah, card yeah. counter was talking to Houdini big time. Yeah, that that was one that got the wool was pulled over my eyes for Martin Scorsese getting a produ- producer credit. Yeah, on executive that. producer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, episode seventeen again. An earlier episode. You know, I don't know. I, I might not have my, <laughs> my, my my microphone shoes on quite yet. But anyway, okay. So drive away dolls for fifty three percent. Wow, Vin. Interesting, uh, interesting. Tough one. Yeah. Honestly, I, I still, I, I still don't know in ways, <laughs> but I think that's where the fifties, especially, you know, ranging from forty-five to fifty-five, can be a lot of things. Yes. Can represent yes. a lot of feelings with films, and I feel like this one is a little bit of a, of a, a lost opportunity, a little bit of a shot in the foot. Um. So uh, what's going to be funny is pairing this with another film coming up. So mm. obviously in two weeks we're going to do our new special. Mm-hmm. The, the really one new film that's coming out this weekend. I don't know if it was on your list or not, but we should probably watch it the week after. Mm. Uh, but it's Love Lies Bleeding with oh. our girl Kristen Stewart. Yes. And also, what's his face? The actor who I just who I absolutely love. Ed Harris is also in it. Oh yeah. Oh, he looks crazy. He looks crazy. Yeah. But this is a. But this again is like a lesbian thriller kind of yeah. romance film. Honestly, that movie I'm very much looking forward to. I think. I, I'm I'm hoping it's going to be really dark when it comes to its thriller aspects, you know. The type of film that I like when it's like, I want to feel terrible, you know. (laughs) Because Driveway Dolls is, there's thriller thrown into the genre for Driveway Dolls. Uh, The studio throws it in, So comedy. I I, I would totally remove that from its genre. So so that's coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, It'd be interesting kind of just to pair those up. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hopefully better. Because hopefully better. <laughs> but 53% for drive-away dolls. Looking at this Cohen week, Vin, uh, do you have any other finishing notes? Anything to last thing touch on? Or uh, Well, I mean, uh, folks, write in if, uh, you know, you got a favorite Cohen Brothers film. Obviously, we've, we haven't covered some big ones here. Yeah, we've we got covered, more to cover. You know, previous on the podcast. And uh, uh, most importantly, if you are a Cohen Brothers film, we'd love to hear maybe uh, some, um, uh, some feedback from you on why, for any number of reasons, why No Country for Old Men hits for you, why it doesn't, uh, and why maybe you think it should be in a must-watch or shouldn't it. Yeah. So. Excellent, Vin. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for stopping by. Thank you for uh, thank you for watching all these films, Vin. Thanks for stopping by tonight. Just a reminder, folks. So like we announced two weeks from now, we have our brand new special that we're going to be having out, the Daily Ratings must-watch special, where we are covering No Country for Old Men, the deep dive. And also, next week is Dune Part mm. 2, uh, one of the most anticipated films of the past year and a half, yeah, yeah. basically, since it was supposed to come out in November. <laughs> uh, but Dune Part 2, so why, it's leaving Netflix, I think. Ooh, might, it might have been leaving Netflix on the 28th, actually. But, oh, uh, HBO Max y- took it back. Oh, is that right? I okay, so. well, watch it on Max. Get ready. Watch watch Dune Part 1 uh, in preparation for it. We're definitely excited for, for Part 2 next week. But... For right now, we're going to run down these films one more time. We have Raising Arizona with a 73%, Oh Brother Where Art Thou with a 61%, Burn After Reading with a 69 
Inside Lewin Davis with a 75. And finally, Drive Away Dolls with a 53%. Folks, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be seeing you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or get the word out and tell a friend about us. And just a reminder, the Daily Ratings is completely producer-supported. We want to stay away from advertising, and we don't want to have any paywalls or tier structures or subscriptions. It's all just value for value. So, are you finding value in any of the things that we're doing here on the Daily Ratings? Then become a producer and donate whatever amount of value that is. Just go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com, and while you're there, be sure to check out the massive amount of films that Vin has rated for us. So thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.